Well, good Sunday morning. This is Pastor Brandon, and welcome back to another worship service with us this morning. Uh, can you believe that we are already in week eight, or I should say Sunday, eight Sundays ago, we started doing online worship services? Um, needless to say, it has been crazy that we've been absent from each other like this uh, for nearly two months. I believe that God is still in control. I believe He's still doing some amazing things. And I believe that God is working even in your home right now. I pray for you daily. I love you guys. I want to make sure that you are connecting in not only these kind of venues, but with each other. So if you haven't, go ahead and make calls uh, to those that you love, those that you care for, maybe even those that you don't care for that much but may need a word of encouragement. As believers in Christ, we are in this together. We are to be worshiping God with one another, even if it's through venues like this. So again, I welcome you back. Uh, I appreciate Matt McCarrier stepping in last week and, and preaching. I think he did an amazing job, and I hope you gave him encouragement as well. Uh, I wanted to close this out for the month of April with the final sermon of the series entitled For the Joy. Uh, and speaking of the Hebrews chapter 12 passage, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, suffering its shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We're going to close out that series today, but before we do, as we would normally do in any given regular service where we would be face-to-face -face in the worship center, uh, we would have gone through a worship set, as you just experienced online a moment ago, uh, but we would have done that live together. We would have also taken up an offering to help us with the daily needs and ministries of North Main Street Church of God, and uh, I want to give you that opportunity now. If you would, go ahead and, and give online at www.northmaincog.org. Again, let me encourage you. You guys have been doing an amazing job. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in giving. I, I don't want you to think that it's gone unnoticed. Um, though I don't look at individual tithing records, the overall numbers uh, coming in have been amazing. So thank you for your sacrifice and your, your ongoing faithfulness to North Main Street Church of God and the ministries here at North Main Street Church of God. Because of your faithfulness, we've been able to serve our community in ways during this time of, of lockdown and stay at home in ways that um, really have impacted, I think, not only this community, but the kingdom of God for the better. So thank you for your faithfulness. Again, go to www.northmaincog.org, and in the top right-hand corner of our homepage is a Give tab. Go ahead and select that, and it'll walk you through the process on how to give electronically. Also, if you want to give via text, you can text to give, and that information is here at the bottom of your screen. Uh, follow that uh, process, and it'll, it'll show you how to give via text. And of course, if you prefer to send it the old-fashioned way through the mail, please send it to 1201 North Main Street Extension, um, Butler, Pennsylvania, 16001. Anyway, again, thank you for your faithfulness. Now that we've got those nuts and bolts out of the way, let me conclude our series uh, that we started close to Easter on this idea of joy 
in the midst of chaos and death. We talk about the death of Jesus Christ. We also can't talk about the death of Christ without also looking at the resurrection. And I want us to look specifically today at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's one of those empowering chapters, but it's also a very complicated chapter in the scripture because there's a lot to be unpacked there. There's a lot to be interpreted there. Uh, but again, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to be reading today from the New Living Testament, as normally I would, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And it's a lot of verses we're going to be covering today, and I'll try to do it as quickly as possible. Um, as I was thinking about this sermon over the past several weeks and how to approach this subject, you would think it would be easy. But from Paul's perspective, it, it, he brings about a lot of the theological context that is somewhat foreign to the church today, uh, especially when we do funerals. A lot of times we'll pull passages from or, or scripture from this passage in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to bring encouragement to people, but, but we've missed the mark on some of the context of this chapter, and I want to try to cover that today. But what is the correct definition of the word resurrection? Well, according to Webster's Dictionary, the resurrection or resurrection is a rising again, chiefly the revival of the dead of the human race or their return from the grave, particularly at the general judgment. Now, you may have no clue what that means, <clears throat> and that's okay. You don't have to at this point, but what we want to try to unpack, not only about the definition, but this passage of Scripture, is, is will we be resurrected like Christ? Now, Jesus is the first of the resurrection, as Paul tells us in this passage. We're going to read in a moment, but he says we too will rise to new life, not just spiritually, but physically. We will have a resurrected body someday, and we're going we're gonna to look at that in just a moment. I came across this illustration I thought was, was rather fitting for today, so let me read it for you. Uh, at the Battle of Inkerman, fought during the Crimean War in 1854, there was a soldier um, who was just able to crawl to his tent after he was struck down. When he, when, when he was found, he was lying face down on the ground, his Bible was open in front of him, and his hand was glued fast by the blood stains on his hand to John chapter 11. When they were able to pry his hand back without tearing the page too poorly, uh, they uncovered what he was, he was pointing to. When his hand was lifted, the letters on the printed page were clearly traced upon underneath his hand. And with uh, this ever-living promise that his hand was resting upon, this is what the scripture said. The words were here. They were this. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, shall live again. Jesus proclaiming in John chapter 11, even before he was arrested, before he was crucified, and before he rose from the grave, indicated to his hearers, to his disciples, that he was the resurrection and the life. Today we close out our series Again, entitled, For the Joy, we focused on Jesus' journey to the cross. We now focus on his, we focused already on his resurrection from the dead. And now we focus on this concept of resurrection. Um, I've been gone over the past week. One of the reasons why Matt McCarrier 
uh, preached for me this past week. And why was I gone? <clears throat> well, my, my mom's mom, my grandmother, passed away on Monday of last week. She had asked me some four years ago to do her funeral for her. Um, she would have been 95 this month. I'm going to miss her terribly. We drove to Kentucky and I did her funeral. So this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 really resonated with me this week. Now this passage has been planned for several months. So I don't think it's a coincidence that all of this kind of, kind of came together this week. But I believe that death doesn't have a sting for her. Death doesn't have a victory over her or her body because she knew the Lord Jesus as her Savior. And I was able to preach the sermon in the context of all of this lockdown with just 10 of our family members together at the funeral home. But I was able to preach it with a sense of joy knowing that death doesn't have a hold on my grandmother. By Wednesday uh, afternoon, I found out that my other grandmother, my only other remaining grandmother, had passed, was being put into hospice care. She would pass by Friday of last week. So I lost two grandmothers within the same week, which is just crazy, believe it or not. She's my grandmother on the Linhart side of the family. They're going to be doing a celebration of life in the summer. But as I bring all of that up within context, I think it's amazing that God somewhat orchestrated this passage of Scripture for me to preach this week. It really has hit home for me and has resonated in a way that I don't think it would have otherwise. Let's look at what Paul's words are in 1 Corinthians. Before we do that, the key point I want to illustrate this, this day is that joy truly exists for the person who knows there is hope beyond the grave. If you didn't think or believe that there was hope beyond the grave, that would be kind of a, a horrible mindset to have. Uh, I know that there are people that believe that today with a humanistic or naturalistic bent that doesn't believe there's anything beyond the grave. You die and you're food for worms. But for the believer in Christ, uh, there is true joy for the one who is in Christ, for the one who believes in Christ, that there is something beyond the grave. There is hope beyond the grave. And that's the good news that Paul tells us in this passage of Scripture. The first thing we see, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack this as we go along. So I normally read the scripture ahead of time, and then I would give you points. But my scripture that I'm reading today will be the points that I'm pointing out. So the first point today is this. Jesus was completely and fully resurrected from the dead. Let's look at Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what, I also, what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and the twelve, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at the same time, most of whom are still alive today, though some have died. I think this is interesting. Think about what he's saying here. 
He's talking about scriptures, what they had foretold, what scriptures existed when Paul was writing this letter to the church at Corinth, which is in Greece. The scriptures that existed were the Old Testament. He's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament that had predicted what exactly was going to happen to the Messiah. Isaiah 53, go ahead and read that when you have a chance. This is what he's talking about. The fulfillment of Jesus' death and resurrection was going to occur. And then it says he rose from the grave. Not only did he raise from the grave and appear to, to uh, the remaining disciples of Jesus, uh, the inner circle of the 11 that were left, Judas had, had died at this point, he was seen by 500 of his followers. I mean, who can attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ except those that have seen him face to face? And so he, he appeared to 500 of them at the same time. Is this mass delusion or mass hallucination? No. This is actual witness testimony Paul is telling us about. Then it goes on. He said... In verse 7, he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. James who? He's indicating he was seen by James, who was now the head of the church in Jerusalem at the time. But who is this James? Because there were many people with the name of James then. He's actually talking about James, the brother of Jesus. The one who had denied that Jesus was actually anything other than a man. Actually, his brothers didn't believe in him. You can read about that in John chapter 7, verse 5. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says, When Jesus was on his route doing ministries, his family came to this home to take him home because they thought he was mad or crazy. Now, James, who is the head of the church, has come to this place of faith and belief that his half-brother Jesus was actually the Messiah, how would he come to that conclusion? Because he had seen his brother die, be buried in a tomb, and now raised to new life. He obviously had seen the scars in his hands and the wound in his side that had been scarred over in this new resurrected body. He goes on to say, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. When did he see him? Go to Acts chapter 9. The road to Damascus experience. This is Paul's conversion experience. He was one of the greatest persecutors of the earliest Christians. He was the one who held the coats of the men who stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, to death. And now he is giving witness to the resurrected Lord. When did he see the resurrected Jesus? On the road to Damascus, he sees one as the Son of Man, this, this Son of God standing before him, and he is blinded, but he sees this, this risen Lord, Jesus, whom he has been persecuting. Go on to verse 10. But whatever I am now, Paul says, it's all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I but God who's working in me by His grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or that they preach or we all preach the same message that you've already believed. Truly, here's the point. The good news of Christ is that He actually rose from the dead. That the body that was laid in the tomb that Friday, after he was crucified and died, 
That body that was laid in the tomb was completely regenerated three days later on Sunday into a new spiritual body, and that old body had been transformed into an imperishable body. The fact that the body was never found is a clear, indica a clear indication that the body that once it encapsulated the incarnate God was now resurrected to new life, to immortal life. Not just some wisp of a spiritual experience, but rather a physical body. One that, that Thomas, the disciples say, unless I see him, unless I can put my hands and fingers into the wounds... I won't believe. And Jesus then appears to Thomas and said, Here, Thomas, come here. Touch, feel the wounds in my hands. Come, put your hand in the wound at my side. It is I. And then Thomas falls before Jesus, declaring, O oh Lord, O oh God. This resurrected body was a physical body, raised to immortal life, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you and I. He was the first of the resurrection. He was the first one ever raised. Well, you might say, well, what about Lazarus? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Yes, he raised him from the dead. And there were other people raised from the dead in the New Testament. We read about that. There are people raised from the dead in the Old Testament, too, by some of the prophets. But what about the second death? They died a second time. They weren't raised to new life and never to die again. That's why Jesus is the first of the resurrection, because he was raised to new life after his death with a new resurrected body, never to die again, never to feel the sting or effects of death again, never to be susceptible to the cross, to disease, to aging, Jesus is the first of the resurrection. The second point today is this. We will be completely and fully resurrected from the death at Christ's return. So not only was Jesus the first of the resurrection, we too will be raised to new life in Christ at the second coming of Christ. Well, what if we die before he comes again? Jesus told the thief on the cross that very day, today you will be with me in paradise. If you remember that passage of scripture from the crucifixion narrative, there was a, or a thief on the cross next to him saying, Would you remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, with, with the, the strength that he had within him, was able to tell that thief, You will be with me in paradise. We, too, who live today and who die today before Jesus' second coming, go to a place of heavenly existence called paradise, a place of rest, of perfect peace. A lot of times you'll read in the New Testament, even the Old Testament, that people have fallen asleep. We're talking about the physical body has fallen asleep for the time being until the second coming of Christ. But the spirit of the one who had existed in the flesh has now gone on to be in this place called paradise where Christ is until the second coming of Christ. Let's read on as we consider this in chapter 15 of Corinthians, starting with verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For there, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and our faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But you can't be true. It can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. 
And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost, he says. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. Okay, what's he saying there? Let's unpack that for a minute. So consider the culture and the church of Corinth. The culture of Corinth in Greece, in the, in the ancient context, the Greeks believed in this Platonic philosophy. Plato and several other philosophers of, of Greek uh, origin and background believed that the body was evil. Anything that is physical is evil. This table that I'm I'm sitting at is evil. The paper that my sermon is printed on is evil. The ink that, that puts the words down is evil. This physical body is evil. But only the spirit that inhabits this shell or this body is perfect and holy. So here's the false belief that was being perpetuated in the Greek church that had infiltrated the Greek Christian church at the time was this Platonic or Plato-type philosophy that had entered in that said Jesus couldn't have raised from the dead because the physical body was evil. Once his physical body died on the cross and was put in the tomb, he was freed from the evil that had encapsulated him, this physical body. Some believed that he didn't raise from the grave, but only his spirit ascended to heaven. Some believed that he wasn't truly a physical body. That's why the tomb is empty. That his, his physical body was just a mere shadow or, or a facade or a mirage of what a real body would be. It was completely spiritual. And so they missed the point. And Paul's saying this is all false. Jesus was was born from the Spirit, but he was also born in a physical body. He came from the womb of Mary. He was a physical being as well as a spiritual being. The two, Paul is saying, is inseparable. That Jesus was really a physical human being at one point in time, though he also existed as a preeminent Christ prior to creation. Paul is saying this, this nonsense that you guys are teaching that the physical body is just completely immoral and that we should just do whatever we want with it is no good. Because here's the teaching that that was perpetuating. Here's the sin that that was perpetuating. They had this idea that you should just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you'll die and you'll be free from this body. So go live it up. Go have, go have sexual relations with whomever and whatever you want to. Go ahead and get drunk all you want to. Go ahead and commit all these grievous types of sin because honestly it's just the physical body that's doing it and not the spirit and so you're you're free to do whatever you want to this is a mentality uh, that still persists in the church today oh I, yeah I believed in Christ and so now that I believe in Christ uh, there's nothing I can do to be separated from him and so people live horrible lives continuing to perpetuate sin in the physical body because they believed in Christ once and that's all it takes and so what do we do with all of that? See, this is, uh, uh, in, the old, in the old days of Paul, this, this idea was known as Gnosticism. And Gnostic belief uh, was actually heretical, was, was false teaching that Paul was preaching and teaching against. 
especially in the church at Corinth, but he also, in some of his writings in the New Testament, some of his other letters, he combats this same idea. John also does this. In 1 John, he talks about the physical resurrection of the body of Christ, not just spiritually, but physically. Let me continue on. Verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because of we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised at the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when, we will be, uh, when, we'll, when he will return the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler, authority, and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when he says all things under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will, uh, will put himself under God's authority, so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. Verse 29, if the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Let me explain that because that is a very complicated passage. Even biblical scholars today <clears throat> don't have a clear understanding of what it means being baptized for the dead. There was a common belief that was held that being baptized for the dead was those who had died before they could be physically baptized, then other believers would be baptized on their behalf. Um, that is the most common expression that I found in, in, in my readings from most biblical scholars is that uh, people weren't stepping in for uh, others to be baptized, but instead those that had died before they were able to be physically baptized by water would be baptized on their behalf in honor of them after their death. So again, I don't want to go into a lot of that right now. It's like a, it, that would be a good class to discuss things one-on-one uh, -on -one so we could dialogue together. Verse 30, And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my, pri uh, this is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value is there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what's right and stop sinning. For your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. Is it possible that people within the church don't know God at all? He's saying that those that are in the church that are perpetuating false teachings and beliefs have no clue of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and instead perpetuate this nonsense that is not even biblical and doesn't square with Scripture. Does that happen today? Of course it does. There's false teaching that happens all the time. That is why it's so vitally important to be a student of the Word of God so that you can know false belief from the truth. 
the, the great biblical scholar, uh, one of the ones I quote often, is, his name is William Barclay. He's uh, an older biblical scholar that is, has since passed on from this life. But he writes uh, in his daily study Bible series on the book of Corinthians this. He, he says this about this passage, and let me quickly read this. This is a very difficult passage because it deals with ideas that are strange to us, because we have a 21st century mindset. It speaks of Christ as the first fruits, he says, of them that sleep. Paul is thinking in terms of a picture which every Jew would have recognized at the time. When Paul is writing this, people in that culture in that day and age would have had a mindset of understanding what he was talking about. The feast of the Passover, he says, has more than one significance. It commemorated the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, yes, but it also was, was this great harvest festival that would occur during that time. It fell just at the same time when the barley harvest was due to be gathered. The law laid it down that you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, and you shall find acceptance. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, you can find the, the, the uh, law of this in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 through 11. He goes on to write, Some sheaves of the barley must be reaped from a common field. They must not be taken from a garden or an orchard from a, a specially prepared soil. They must be brought to the temple... There it would be threshed with soft canes so as not to bruise it. It was then parched over the fire in a perforated pan so that every grain was touched by fire. It was then exposed by the wind so the chaff was blown away. It was then ground, into bar or ground in a barley mill and its flour offered to God. That was what was considered the first fruits. Now listen to what he says. It is significant to note that not until after that was done could the new barley be bought and sold in the shops and the bread be made from the new flour. The first fruits were a sign of the harvest to come. And the resurrection of Jesus was a sign of the resurrection of all believers that would, which was to come in the future. Just as the new barley could not be used until the first fruits had been duly offered to God, so the new harvest of life could not come until Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits, the first of the resurrected, and we will be that great harvest of Christ when the resurrection of the dead happens at his second coming. Just like Jesus, we too will be resurrected from the dead someday with a spiritual body, that can never wither or fade or die. Go, uh, go back all the way through the chapters of John leading up to his crucifixion. In John chapter 14, one of my favorite chapters of the Gospel of John, he talks about going to prepare a place for his disciples and not to worry that he will come and take them to be where he is. He's talking about, listen, I'm going to die and, and I will go prepare a place for you. He's talking about when he comes again, he will take us to be with him. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead, where we will physically be with him someday. Finally, there's this last, last point I want to make on this passage today, and that's this. Our bodies carrying all the characteristics that make us human will be transformed into an imperishable, immortal body, just like Jesus' resurrected body. 
Jesus' resurrected body, in the 40 days after his resurrection that he spent on earth, uh, presenting himself before 500 of his believers, before James, his brother, and all the other apostles, was able to eat fish. Read about that in John chapter 21. The resurrected Lord prepared fish for breakfast for the disciples who had been out fishing that night. It was physically able to be touched, as I mentioned earlier, by Thomas, the disciple who doubted Jesus' resurrection. It was able to physically appear and physically disappear. It could go through walls and appear behind locked doors. So it wasn't bound by the physical laws of this earth. But it also was physical in the sense that it could be touched. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's conclude with Paul's treatise on the resurrection. Verse 35, But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question, he says. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow uh, into a plant unless it dies first. He's talking about the seed. The seed has to die. The plant dies and falls over, and the seeds bury themselves in the ground. The plant that holds the seed must die. The seed itself must die and be buried in the ground. And when it comes back, what does it look like? Does it look like a seed? No, it looks like a whole new plant. And what you put in the ground, he says, is not the, is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. And then God will give it new, a new body that he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. There's one for humans, one for animals, others for birds, another for fish. He's talking about the, these different kinds of flesh that inhabit the world we live in. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and see how those different kinds of flesh were made. They were created by God. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. Think about this. Paul is writing this. And, and, and we now know by different technologies and, and telescopes and, and astronomical discoveries that there are these mega giant red stars and blue stars. And how could Paul have known except by inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Verse 42. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to new life forever. Raised to live forever, excuse me. He's talking about being buried in the ground, in a tomb. Even if you are cremated, your, your ashes are, are in essence buried in an urn, or some are scattered across different places into the ground. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just uh, as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us the first, Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. 
What comes first is the natural body, and then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. We'll talk about that in just a second. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday, someday be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This physical body that is prone to death cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is why our bodies will be transformed into spiritual bodies. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. We have to have a forever body to inhabit the kingdom of God. Verse 51 but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. Now, I love this part. This is where we, we oftentimes read, these at funer- read this at funerals. We will not die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to new life forever. So those that have died at the second coming of Christ will be raised to new life with an imperishable spiritual physical body. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to new life forever, and the the ones who are living will be also transformed. Like in an instant, we who are still living, if we get the pleasure to continue to be living when Christ comes again, our bodies will be immediately transformed into imperishable bodies. For our dying bodies, verse 53, must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. And here's that famous funeral passage. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death. He's talking all the way back to Adam. What did did God tell Adam? If you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? You'll surely die. Adam ushered in death and sin into the world. But Christ ushered in life. But thank God, he says in verse 57, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Paul is indicating that for now, we who are born on this earth since the time of Adam are born from the same substance from which Adam was made, the dust of the earth. We have natural bodies, but since the time of Adam and the fall, mankind's natural bodies have been corrupted by sin and death, making all of us susceptible to those effects. Just like my grandparents this past week. One who was 94, about to be 95, and one who had just turned 90. Their bodies were racked with time, in age, in disease. But now, their spirit dwells in paradise awaiting the day of resurrection of the dead when they will have imperishable bodies that will never wither or fade or grow tired. They have gone on to be with their loved ones that have gone on in the Lord 
and they are living the new life of Christ. Christ, however, is different, isn't he? Paul tells us that he, is a, he, he, he exists as a life-giving spirit. One of the things that makes Jesus very distinctive from any of the rest of human, li- human life is this. He was born and had a physical body. Yes. He had a physical body that could wither and fade and was susceptible to death. He did die. That was not a mirage. It actually happened. And he did rise to new life. But the one significant truth about Jesus is that he was not born from man, but from the conception of the Holy Spirit and Mary, who had a physical body. So the Holy Spirit, because of the Holy Spirit, Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus. So he was both completely spirit and divine, and he was completely physical in human form. It wasn't, it wasn't some, <clears throat> some twisted nonsense or Gnostic belief. It was truly, he was physical and he was divine. And he showed us how we could live like him in these physical bodies. We could start that new life now. We now have the opportunity to live in imperishable bodies. Maybe not in this physical existence that we have, this shell of a body we have, but this body we have will be transformed in an instant. Even if we die before Christ's second return, we will be transformed and raised to new life. What happened as a result of the resurrection, honestly, is unprecedented in human history. In the span of a few hundred years, a small band of seemingly insignificant believers succeeded in turning the entire empire, the Roman Empire, upside down. Within 300, going on 400 years after Christ, the empire, Roman Empire, would be converted to Christianity. Go from a band of persecuted believers to a band of believers who would be, who would be able to stand with authority. The main reason that believers in Christ throughout the centuries have grown in number and have not wavered in their faith under great persecution is because of the veracity and the sheer impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, none of this is even conceivable. Church is not even a possibility without the resurrection of Christ. Believers' faith have endured the centuries and even strengthened under pressure. Is your faith now being strengthened under pressure? I mean, the threat of death from COVID-19 has has panic-stricken not only our nation, but the whole world. We shouldn't worry about it, though, should we? As believers in Christ, we have no fear of death. We should have no fear of death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Instead, we have a hope beyond disease, beyond these physical bodies. We have a hope of a spiritual body that can never be affected by COVID-19, SARS, the flu, cancer, anything else. 
Jesus' resurrection reassures those of us who believe in him that we too will be resurrected. And the fact that the grave does not hold us should be sheer hope for the future. We can sing for joy at the funerals of those who have died in Christ, knowing that death is not the final answer and that there is victory over death for the follower of Christ. Truly joy exists for the one who knows there is hope beyond the grave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that hope in Christ Jesus, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. Thank you, God, that we who die in Christ know that we will not be absent uh, from him, but God will be present with him as we await the resurrection of the dead. Thank you for the promise of paradise as you spoke to the thief on the cross, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Thank you for the future hope of a place prepared for us in your heavenly kingdom. And thank you, God, that you haven't forgotten our plight in this world, though it seems desperate at times and chaotic, though it seems to be ruled by death, we know that death has no sting or victory over the one who is in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that promise, God. Thank you for hope everlasting. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love us completely with an everlasting love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Until next week, God bless you. We'll see you soon.